Great to be here for Kaya's debut on stage. What a blessing. Such a sweet voice. And great, great uh, worship with uh, Izzy as well before that. Oh, well, it is great to be here. As Robert said, my name is Aaron. I pastor a church out in uh, Lake Forest in Orange County. And uh, it's just a little bit that way, but I'm happy to be here tonight to share the word with you all. Pastor Rick reached out to me and um, asked if I could be here, and I said it would be my pleasure, of course. It always is. <clears throat> and um, I, I hope and trust that he is enjoying a pleasant, restful evening and not thinking about us and just being on vacation. But tonight, uh, we are in the book of First Samuel, uh, where the author traces for us 1st and 2nd Samuel together. They're sort of the story of that early kingdom age for Israel. The nation has moved through the time of being led by the judges and now at their demand, you might say, but certainly by the hand of God, they've received their first king. They got what they asked for, King Saul. But as many of you know, he has failed repeatedly to, to submit to and to obey God's word and, uh, and his ways. And for that, Saul has lost the throne. But even though God has chosen David to replace him, the time for David to be king has not yet come. This, however, doesn't and didn't stop Saul in hateful paranoia from chasing David from the palace and seeking to track him down and kill him for several years, more than 10 years, I think. David endured that, hiding from Saul and, and running. Well, tonight's verses are in chapter 24. If you've brought your Bibles, you can turn there or scroll there in your device. But it brings us, this chapter, to a very difficult time in David's life. I mean, you'd think it, it was difficult enough to begin with, but this gets especially hard here. One in which he'll be faced with an opportunity to exact vengeance on his enemy, King Saul. It's kind of not exactly accurate to call Saul David's enemy, although David was Saul's enemy. Uh, that was his his perspective. I, I'll, it always takes me a few minutes to get this right here. Uh, there, there. I should have just brought my pulpit from home. Then we'd be okay, but you know. <laughs> David is going to be faced with the opportunity to exact vengeance against his enemy, as I said. But instead, he chooses mercy. He chooses to love and to forgive the one who hates him. To give us a little bit of context, in the prior chapter 23, if you've not been in First and Second Samuel for a while, uh, we find David and his men fighting Philistines and fleeing Saul. Twice after that, he's, he's turned on by his brethren, and they reported to the king where he was, which is now in the Judean wilderness in, in En Gedi, on the western shores of the Dead Sea. Maybe some of you have been there before. Here he was almost captured by Saul, but word of an enemy invasion forced him to retreat, and uh, David was able to escape. Um, 
En Gedi is uh, an oasis in the desert. It's a region with high hills, cliffs, and caves. It's ideal for hiding out from one's enemies. And, and that's exactly what David is doing and where we find him. Our message tonight is titled Choosing to Forgive. If you're interested in writing it down or getting some context for where we're headed, I, we've kind of already set the stage for it. But choosing to forgive is the very thing that you and I are called to, to forego any perceived right, to hold on to a grudge, nurse bitterness, or punish those who have hurt us, and to instead forgive, to love our enemies even. And what we find is that actually frees us. It liberates us to live in God's full calling on our lives. Maybe some of you have found that to be true. It's healing for us. In the model prayer that's given to us by Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who have sinned against us. He went further, and Matthew records in the sixth chapter of his gospel account, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a difficult few verses there. You and I have been forgiven the entirety of our sin debt before God and are called to extend that forgiveness to others, even and perhaps especially so to those who have hurt us the most. Personally, I have been deeply impacted by the stories of those who have the most reason not to forgive, but have chosen to do so anyway. Have you heard stories like that and been moved by them? Evangelist Luis Palau, he shared that Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, was reminded one day of a vicious deed that someone had done to her years before. But she acted as if she had never even heard of the incident. Don't you remember it? Her friend asked. No, came Barton's reply. I distinctly remember forgetting it. A reporter was interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday and asked the elderly man, what are you most proud of? Well, said the man, I don't have an enemy in the world. Yeah, what a beautiful thought. How inspirational, replied the reporter. Yep, added the elderly gentleman, I've outlived every single one of them. As you might guess, we're leaning more toward the first stories uh, version and application of forgiveness and not, not the latter. The idea is not just to outlive or outmaneuver our enemies, but to truly be freed from the tyranny of hating them and being ensnared by bitterness towards them, choosing to forgive. And I think chapter 24 of 1 Samuel walks us in, in uh, great nearness to that truth. So let's pray and we'll, we'll start with the first few verses. Father, as we open your word tonight, we're praying, God, that you would cause our hearts and minds to be open to those things that you would want to say to us. Lord, that we might reflect this reality that's so central to the gospel itself. Father, that we would trust you in deeper ways. Lord, with, with this act of faith, 
that, that can sometimes be one of the most difficult things we have to do. Lord, would you reveal to us your heart? Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to not be hearers only, but doers of your word? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to start this morning looking at the first couple of verses by way of introduction. Verse 1, now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines. Remember in chapter 23, he almost caught David, but then word came of the Philistines making an incursion, and so he went with his armies away, and David was able to escape. Well, after that, it was told him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. We've had another David sighting, Saul. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, sort of um, his, his uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, special, yeah, it's special forces. There we go. That was it. Yeah, you can tell I've not spent any time in the military. I'm sorry. Forgive me. If you have, thank you for your service. Anyway, Saul returns with these 3,000 that are his top men, and they're from all over Israel, and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So the Philistines are taking care of Saul's recon team, then reports to him, David is still in the south. We've seen him, we know where he is, he's hiding out in En Gedi. And we mentioned earlier, this is an oasis that's on the western shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, it's one of only two natural springs, actually, in that area that has uh, potable water. The rest are undrinkable due to the incredibly high uh, salt and mineral content in the Dead Sea itself. It's effectively spoiled most of the other sources of water in the area. The Dead Sea has 10 times the salinity of the ocean. So you can't drink it, of course. You, 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 can, you can float in it. You can swim in it, kind of. But it's really salty. Uh, en Gedi, though, is fresh. You can still visit it today, take a little trail, a hike up, to the different springs go up. There's a few different levels of it, but there are also lots of hiding places for David and his men. So he's got water, shelter, and he'll be able to find food. But Saul accepts the challenge. He assembles these 3,000 men from across the nation. Together, they head down to capture and kill David. This is an especially rocky area with cliffs and steep crags, and it's also home to the ibex. It's a long-horned wild goat, and uh, En Gedi actually means the haunt of the wild goat or spring of the goats. Uh, verse 2, we read that Saul went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So let's get into what happens next. Uh, Saul pursues is our first point tonight. Verse 3, so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. Now, what's being described is a stone enclosure for sheep, a little wall formed with rocks. Shepherds would make these fenced areas around the mouths of caves, and then in the event of a storm, would move them inside. But the shepherds would stay in, the sheep could be uh, outside, and uh, it, it was very common at, at the time and in the place. You, they actually have them still today. You can go and, and I'm not sure, I have not seen them, but you can go and wander through that area and find some of these. I've read that they're there. But anyway, Saul, we read, after uh, 
he's wandering around looking, searching for David. He came to the sheepfolds by the road. There was a cave. And Saul went in, we read, to attend to his needs. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Verse 4, then the men of David said to him, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David rose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So Saul happens to come right into this cave where David and his men are hiding. And David crawls up and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe without him knowing. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. There's a lot going on in these verses. Saul finds himself in this cave, the one that David and his 600 men happened to be hiding in. David is presented with this opportunity to take out vengeance against him, yet his conscience bothers him and, and he relents holding his men back as well, ending with Saul finally leaving the cave. Now understand that from or for someone looking into the cave from outside, because we might think, how in the world did Saul walk into a cave with 600 soldiers and not realize that they're there? Well, Saul's coming from outside the, the brightness of the day into a dark cave. It would be pitch black, but for those looking in, excuse me, but for those looking out, the view would be clear. Like when you go into a movie theater uh, or a dark room, from inside, once your eyes are adjusted, you can see out easily. Maybe you've had this experience before. You've gone to Harkins and you're outside, you're in the hallway, maybe it's a sunshiny day, and then you walk into the theater and it's kind of hard to make things out at first, especially if the previews are already playing and it's dark inside. But then your eyes kind of adjust and you can see a little bit. But the reverse is true if you're coming out of the theater. Now you're going down the little hallway and, and the door opens up and you can see out into the lobby and everything's very clear. That's a little bit of what's going on here, all right? Saul approaches this cave and he can't see anything in except pitch black. David and his men are in the recesses of the cave. They're in the dark, but they can see out. They see Saul coming in. You get the idea here of what's happening. Now, we're given in scripture sort of an interesting phrase here. It says, now Saul went in to attend to his needs. What does that mean? Well, I read one commentator who I think was being gracious, writing that Saul was taking a nap. Um, maybe, and that could explain why David was able to sneak up, cut off a corner of his robe without him knowing. But most believe that he was seeking a private moment in which to relieve himself to go to the bathroom, okay? The King James Version says it kind of literally that David, or Saul rather, covered his feet like he dropped his robe down. Uh, this would be a vulnerable position for anybody, right? Here's David with all of his men, and they're like, David, now's the time to strike. Saul is not at his best, and we could end this. Well, David being undetected could also uh, be explained, though, David being able to come up and cut the robe, by maybe Saul walked in and set his robe aside and then found a comfortable place to sit, 
Uh, We're not exactly sure here, but we also need to remember David and his men, 600 of them, they're in the cave. Saul has come in and he's quietly tending to himself. And some of us still might think, how is this working that they're not seeing each other? How is Saul not hearing somebody sneeze or move or wiggle? Saul has 3,000 soldiers that are very close by, and I'm sure they're not being quiet. So there's all kinds of noise outside. David and his men, they're hiding in the darkness of inside of the cave. Saul's eyes are adjusting, and chances are he's not staring into the darkness. He's staring back towards the light. And so David is able to sneak up close to Saul or his robe and carefully cut off a corner. Either way, It's clearly a setup that Saul just happened to come upon this particular cave where David and his men are hiding. It's no coincidence. David's men who are with him, hiding back in the cave, they recognize this again, as I mentioned before, as a golden opportunity, uh, and, and they press David to take full advantage of it. And that may well have been David's original intention though clearly he changes his mind. Verse 5, now it happened afterwards that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Now, some of you know exactly what the problem is here. David's been called to be king, but he's also chosen to trust God in this process of becoming king, this path that God has for him to the throne. He's purposed That if the throne is to be his, it will be God who gives it to him. To get ahead of God's plan, to take matters into his own hands, to accomplish this goal by fleshly means would jeopardize the plan itself and God's purposes for David. As painful as all of this was, God did not need David's help. And David was convinced of that. God was actually working in David through all of this to prepare him for the very thing that he was called to. But to be Israel's king, a man after God's own heart, David had to learn to endure trials, trusting God and not leaning on his own understanding, seeking to solve problems on his own. He couldn't be the kind of man who took matters into his own hands. He had to learn to leave them in God's. You see, God already had a king like that, and his name was Saul. And because of it, he'd lost the throne. God needed someone different. God's looking for that same quality in you and I, that we would trust him sometimes to our own hurt, Not in the most ultimate sense, but in the sense of there may be some temporary struggles. There may be some pain that we endure on the path of trusting him because we're choosing to believe that he is able and that his greater purposes will be accomplished, that his will is going to be done. I think that's something of what we're called to pray in following Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. David knew he was called to be king, but he understood that in order to serve and stand in that place of of king, to do it rightly and to honor God, it meant he had to learn to submit to and to trust the Lord. If he was to rule God's people well, he had to learn to not try to take everything into his own hands. 
It was too big for that. David had to recognize that this was a job only God could carry. And he was learning to trust him. The corner of the robe was a small thing. But when God is working in the lives of his people, small things matter. We might say that God doesn't want us cutting corners in a sense. And it might look like gossip, a seemingly innocent word that's actually a veiled insult or accusation. It's often a form of of cutting off the robe of an enemy. You see, what David did was not taking Saul's life, but it was getting close enough, toying with the temptation and and having in his hands the, the evidence that the opportunity and the possibility was there. There are those in our lives that maybe we're inclined to do that same thing towards, to bring a measure of hurt against. Maybe we're following the letter of the law. Well, I didn't kill him, but I am bringing harm to him or to her. We need to practice a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, responding when he convicts us, and he will. David knew that even the act of cutting the corner of Saul's robe was wrong, perhaps because his original intention was to do more, but maybe just because he knew that he was supposed to do nothing. Can you maybe find a situation in your life that's similar, where you know God's called you to trust a situation, a person, an offense into his hand, to forgive, to give it to the Lord, to stop bringing it back up, to to stop... Uh, meditating on it and fixating on it, but the temptation is strong to talk about it, to talk about that person, to, to act as though you've forgiven, but really to verbally do them harm by continually bringing it back up. There's something of that here. Verse six, David says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David not only relented of this himself, but made sure that his men understood as well. David passed the test, the test of trusting God with his enemies. And so how are you and I doing with this? When presented with the opportunity to harm the ones that have hurt or offended us, do we pass the test? Keep our lips closed or do we take advantage of the opportunity? There's subtle ways of doing this, aren't there? There's ways of suggesting and introducing into a conversation uh, information that maybe it's not quite exactly true. It's it's partly false, kind of a, a character assassination. Our hands are sort of clean, but, but we know in our flesh that we're attacking that person. We haven't truly forgiven them. We're really still in bondage to what happened, to the sin that was committed against us. Slicing off a little bit of the robe, planting 
a thought or an accusation, true or not, engaging in some other act that's harmful to them. It's not treating others, treating our enemies as God has called us to. And it exposes our hearts as not having truly released and forgiven. Jesus gave us what's been dubbed the golden rule in Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you have, uh, excuse me, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He said, this is the summation uh, of the law and everything the prophets had to say. What, what you want people to do to you, you do that to them. Prior to that, he'd gone even further in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. (laughs) That's a pretty tall order. How in the world is that possible? I mean, honestly. It's only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Having been saved and forgiven through the blood of Jesus, it's the result of, of God's working of redemption in our lives. The outworking is that we would then forgive others, releasing those by whom we have been hurt. And honestly, I think it's one of the most powerful witnesses and examples to a watching world of the reality of the gospel in our lives. Sometimes it's more powerful than any, any gospel presentation or message that we could share. Extending to others the same gift that we've received. Choosing to forgive. What did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I've heard some argue against the necessity of forgiving those who've not asked for forgiveness. But I see it right there from the cross. Jesus was asking the Father to forgive those who didn't even know what they were doing and had no interest in what Jesus was doing in that moment. When we hold on to unforgiveness, we're we're only imprisoning ourselves. We're only hindering God's work and growth in our lives. And and we're cutting ourselves off from the power of the gospel itself, from, from a deeper experience of grace. What we're watching here in some ways is is maturity and growth in real time for David. He ends in the right place, and we're, we're speculating a little bit about what was going on inside of him. But boy, did he have heavy circumstances to wrestle with. What would you and I do in that situation? The man who has sought to take our li- your life. Not more than once in David's case. Saul tried to pin him against the wall by throwing a spear at him when he was in the palace a few times. And he's almost closed in on him in the wilderness as David has fled. He's had to leave friends and family back in Gibeah, which was the capital at that time. He was ruining his life. Now he's got the opportunity to take out vengeance, the opportunity and the means. I think personally there was a little bit of wrestling there, as as I've suggested. But let's move on to find out what happens next in verses 8 through 15. David appeals. He's going to now take the enormous risk of trying to reach out directly to Saul. 
to share his heart and perhaps win him over. Verse 8, David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to him saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? And I think David's being a little bit gracious here with Saul. I don't believe David or Saul needed any advisors whispering in his ear, oh, David's trying to get you, David this, David that. I think Saul was coming up with it all on his own in his hate and paranoia, his insecurity, but, but David probably wanting to be a little bit gracious, saying, Saul, surely you couldn't be convinced of this on your own. Who's telling you that, that I have some, something against you or that I'm trying to bring harm to you? Verse 10. He says, look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. And the book of Proverbs, of course, was written by David's son Solomon uh, sometime after this, and it wasn't in existence at this point, so this proverb came from some other source. But verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue, a dead dog, a flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Wow, David. You kind of read this and go, you could have left well enough alone here. You're hidden in the cave. Saul doesn't see you. If you just laid low with your men for a while longer, Saul would have moved, moved on and you would have been fine. But remember, David's a man after God's own heart. His conscience troubled him and, and his heart broke for this situation that this, this man whom, frankly, he honored as the king and loved, felt and believed him to be an enemy. And, and David, by faith, he's trusting the Lord and he's looking for this to be an opportunity, perhaps for reconciliation. So after reading those verses, after taking in this first half of this chapter, you're kind of left wiping the sweat from your brow. Uh, David sneaking up behind Saul, his men motioning and whispering for him to take out the wicked king. David silencing them and then crawling back to the safety of the group. Saul straightening up from taking care of his business and then walking out. Crisis averted. But then David follows after him. And you wonder if some of the men, knowing for certain that David would not harm the king because they knew David, were pleading, David, no, come back. They knew what was happening because he's probably told them, you guys stay behind. And he goes after the king, and they're thinking, that's it, we're done. We're stuck in this cave. Saul's got a greater army than we do. It's over. If it doesn't work, they're all dead. But David wasn't interested in self-preservation. He cared more about this relationship. He genuinely cared about and loved Saul and longed to see him right in this mess. David wanted him to stop fighting, to, to know that he wasn't his enemy and that he never would be. Think about the Beatitudes given by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I see David in those verses, meek, hungering for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker. And for it, he was persecuted. There's a, there's a cost to discipleship, but it's also a blessed path. For David, it led to the throne. It led to God's plan. Ironically, Saul is the opposite of these things. He's vengeful, hungering for for power and self-promotion. His heart corrupted a violent and divisive man. And it drives him away from God's best for his life. So who are you and I becoming? Because every day we're moving more in one direction or the other. We're either becoming more like Christ or following more after the flesh life. Are you and I looking more like David, more like Christ? Think about those words from Matthew 5 in your evaluation. Verse 8, where we find David emerging from the cave. He comes out and he says, my Lord, the king. Saul knew David's voice. He'd heard it ring out in the palace so many times, accompanying the shepherd's lyre. When David would come and and play worship for the king to try to help calm him during the different fits that he would go through. I imagine he froze in his steps for a moment before he even turned around. It was David, but David was speaking to him as a subject, not an enemy, a servant who recognized the authority and the power of his king. And as we'll see, one word and one step at a time, David disarms the king not with weapons, but by appealing to his heart through obvious respect, love, and forgiveness. I think about how the Proverbs tell us, a gentle word turns away wrath. In the New Testament, the wrath of man, it doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. So many times we think the approach is is to take a a take charge stance, to bring a show of force, to get aggressive and angry, to meet our, our accusers and our attackers on the same level. But what we see in Scripture is something completely different. Why do you listen to the words of men, he says, who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Saul, you know me better than this, David says. I've never tried to harm you. In fact, you know you've tried to hurt me and I've never defended myself. That reality had to resonate in Saul's heart and mind. Verse 10, look this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you. Saul, if I'd wanted it, you'd already be dead, David says to him. But then David shared what he declared to his men and what he was committed to. Verse 10, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed holding the corner of of his robe, Saul's robe that he cut off. David now uses what was before possible possible evidence of his leaning towards sin as proof that though he'd had ample opportunity, he chose not to act on it. 
And thankfully, that was the case because otherwise Saul would be right and David a liar as he would have been the murderer the king was accusing him of being. And what damage would that have wrought to David's leadership, to God's plan, to these 600 men who are following and watching David? So often that the greatest pressure comes in those moments when we're pulled in between doing the thing that the world and our flesh would say is right and frankly is justified and that harder thing that requires faith that God is calling us to do. To trust the Lord with our enemies, to forgive. And God stretches us like he stretched David because you and I as well have been called not to simply live like everyone else in the world, but to live as servants of the King of Kings. We're ambassadors of and for his kingdom. We have a higher calling, and God's standard is different and greater than it is for the world. And so we shouldn't be surprised that there are times when he calls us into places, places of obedience, places of faith that are painful and difficult. And how difficult this must have been for David. Had David taken matters into his own hands, thought himself to be in the position to mete out judgment that wasn't his, it would have and could have ruined God's calling on his life. It's not our responsibility or right either to mete out justice and judgment. We need to be careful of thinking twice before we act out in, a, in that way against those that, that have upset or hurt us. Paul's very clear about our calling as believers in this regard. In Romans 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And, and we recognize that Paul wrote there by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as much as it depends on you, Sometimes we've done everything we can and it's just not possible. And that's all we're responsible for. You do what you can do and don't do what you're not supposed to do. And if God moves on that person's heart and you're able to enjoy and engage in a restored relationship and peace, praise God. Sometimes we're not able to enjoy that. But we are called to walk in the light of God's word in so much as he's revealed it to us. We're called to walk in that truth. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is a difficult passage if we're all honest with ourselves. But honestly, it mostly has to do with trusting God. Again, it has to do with faith, faith in the Lord. Not getting confused about what he's responsible for and what we're not. Very simply, our job, yours and mine, is to forgive. His is to judge. You may not like it, but that's how it is. I highly encourage you to 
learn this whole concept as most of us are in need of quite a bit of mercy from the Lord. Jesus speaks about this, this in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And in the context of talking about not judging and extending forgiveness, hear what Jesus says. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Wow. Sometimes we quote those verses separate from one another. But when we read them in context, we realize, oh my goodness. We're called not to judge, and, and we're called to extend mercy uh, to, to those that, that have offended, hurt, and sinned against us. And we're told there, for the measure that we use to extend it to others, that's what we're going to experience. Wow. It says here, given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together. Anybody here bake, cook, anything like that? I remember as a kid watching my mom in the kitchen, my daughter, she loves to bake. And I know that for certain recipes, flour, you're supposed to use a what? A sifter, right? And you sift it, and it's one cup, two cups of flours sifted. That's very different from a cup of flour packed in, which could be three or four times as much. Well, Jesus says here, when we're talking about extending mercy and forgiveness and grace to others, man, pack it down. Be generous. Give commensurate with the mercy and grace that you have received at the cross. And as I mentioned at the beginning, that's not something we can do on our own, is it? What we're talking about here, looking at the life of David and, and, and the extraordinary steps of faith and extending mercy and trusting God and endangering himself, that's, that's something we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. That's a not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. That's, that's a, a Lord, this, this has to be your power being made perfect through my weakness because I can't do this. On, this isn't simply, it is obedience, but it can't be obedience in and of itself. It's got to be the Lord. It's got to be us inviting him and saying, I I can't do this on my own. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe that helps some of you that are wrestling with this because I realize when we speak to the subject of forgiveness, that's that's a sensitive one. Because most of us have hurts that have been committed against us that, that we've been carrying for a long time. And maybe you've dealt with it. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're holding a grudge Maybe it's, it's a, a regular exercise that you have to walk back through of trusting the Lord again and afresh to be able to forgive that one that's hurt you, to, to be able to recognize, Lord, you have wiped out the whole of my sin debt. I don't want to be guilty of withholding that same mercy towards others. We've received freely and and we're called and we should give in the same way. David's final word to Saul, verse five, therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. That's really what we need to say, especially in those situations where, God, you be judge. Let the Lord be judge. I, I can't judge. That's too much to carry. 
It feels good for our flesh for a minute to, to hate someone, if I'm being honest, to, to, you know, have visions and images of cement trucks and things like that, <laughs> finding some enemy on the freeway during... I've, I'm terrible. You're thinking, why is he here tonight? I don't know. But that's a weight to carry that we're not meant to. The truth is, is that as hard as it seems to forgive, it's harder to not forgive. It, it, it's, it's a weight that pulls us down from the heights that we're called to. We will drown. We will suffocate under that burden. Jesus says, my blood was shed to release that. Would you let it go? Would you trust me? Verses 16 through 22 reveal the effect David's words had on the king. Our last point tonight, Saul relents. Verse 16, so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Saul has had a change of heart here. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dwelt well, dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Not usually. Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. <laughs> Saul's almost prophesying here in humility before David. So David swore to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul is deeply moved by David's words, by his humility, by his transparency. By this act of faith, Saul, Saul knew that while his life a moment ago was in David's hands, David's, hand, David's life was now in his hands, and yet David was trusting him, giving him an opportunity to respond to God's mercy. All he can do is confess the truth and weep. He knows he's been wrong, even admitting that he knows David will one day be king, begging that he be merciful to his family when that day comes. At least for the moment, he's humbling himself. David's son Solomon years later would write in Proverbs 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. God had without a doubt given David that favor. Saul then returns home, and, and David knows better than to fully trust the king. And so he returns to hide out deeper in En Gedi. David, he, he appreciates what the Lord's done here, and, and I'm sure he and Saul embraced. But as Saul made his way back to Gibeah, David said to his men, uh, yeah, we're going to keep hiding out because I've gotten to know Saul uh, over a lengthy period of time here, and we're just going to give this time and, and see where it goes. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. We all understand that, don't we? <laughs> Boundaries are okay in many situations. Not all of them. Sometimes God brings about full restoration, but, but other times it's a matter of releasing and relieving our hearts and extending to others 
the same that we've received from the Lord, but it's okay to sleep with one eye open in that regards in, in terms of those relationships. Why couldn't Saul be trusted by David? Why wasn't this change permanent in his life? I mean, we just read what Saul said. It sure sounded heartfelt. Well, the problem was Saul's heart. He was rebellious. He was self-willed, and he'd allowed his heart to grow hard. Saul was one who was given to emotional responses in the moment, but not a lot of follow-through. He responded that day, even led his armies away. But his jealousy, fear of man, and hatred, it would force its way back to the surface, back to the, the forward part of his heart again eventually. It won't be long before Saul is once again chasing David, sadly. And it reminds us of Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, Mark 4, verse 16. These, likewise, are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they heard the word, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves. And so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. A life that's only impacted uh, emotionally without real change, no depth or growth, it's going to revert back to its old ways soon as the pressure gets to be too much. But because they were relying on their own strength, not the Lord's. And sadly, Saul won't allow this work of God to penetrate his heart. But the issue isn't Saul. It's you and I. It's David. We can get too preoccupied with the one that's hurt us, with the one that's committed the sin, with the enemy. That's not the point. The point is our heart. That, that we would tend and maintain a heart before the Lord that, that's allowing itself to be ever impacted by the grace of the gospel where we're constantly reminded of how much we've been forgiven. And so we cannot help but extend that grace and forgiveness to others. I've said this before when visiting here, but Pastor Kim Hutchcroft, he's still on the worship team sometimes, I think. He was here on staff for a long time, and, and he used to say something I loved. He would say, have a mistake on me. I love that. When I would mess up or do something, I don't remember any specific context, but he would have, have a mistake on me. I like that. I need to do that more. I need to write that down somewhere. <laughs> My staff would probably appreciate that and people in our church. Yeah, Pastor Aaron. How about you let some stuff slide a little bit and lighten up? We need to do that with people. We need to extend grace and have an attitude of remembering just how much God's allowed in our lives. Sometimes there's so much distance between us and when we first surrendered that we've kind of lost touch of what a mess we were to begin with. And we look at the Saul's and, and similar persons and individuals in our lives and we think, oh my gosh, they're so terrible and how could God ever forgive them and, and thank God that I'm not a sinner like he is. And the Lord's saying, no, we're all capable of that same thing. And as such, we need to remember to freely forgive just as we've been forgiven. David's reaction to Saul, it's almost unbelievable. We'll, we'll end here for the night. For, for many of us, the idea of passing up the opportunity to finally pay back an enemy, it's hard to fathom. Choosing to forgive, it's one of the most powerful and freeing paths that you and I can walk Holding on to bitterness, withholding mercy is deceptive. 
seems like the powerful thing to do, but in reality, it's weak, it's foolish. Some of you, some of you, you know the, the, the bitter satisfaction of meeting out justice and how disappointing it really is and the pain and the poison that it brings to your soul. It's not worth it. One big reason David was able to forgive and walk in humility was because, (laughs) I said some of you know, I'll raise my hand, I know. I have been in that place where either I've cut the robe or I've cut even higher or I've put the knife in. Not literally, I haven't, you know, committed murder or, you know, been convicted of assault or anything like that. But it's hard, isn't it? This is real life. It's tough when somebody really, I'm not talking about cut you off on the freeway, cutting you off in life where you struggle with remembering that person and what they did. One big reason David was able to forgive and walk in humility was because he remembered how much he needed God's mercy himself, as we've repeated multiple times tonight. We'll we'll close with the verse from the psalm he wrote reflecting on this moment in his life. Psalm 57, verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, David wrote. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. In reflecting on that moment of meeting Saul in the cave and wrestling with how to respond, David wrote and he said, be merciful to me, God. You see how deceptive and dark my heart is, the murder and the hatred that resides there. God, would you birth your redemption in my life afresh? I need a work of your spirit now to rescue me from myself, lest I become the one that I'm struggling to forgive. David knew he desperately needed the mercies of God, and and that helped to free his heart to extend the same mercy to his greatest enemy. It enabled him to choose to forgive. May we not forget our own great need for mercy, that gift given us at the cross, And through Christ having been punished in our place. Not getting what we rightly deserve under the law. I know this is the third time I've said that I'm going to close. I I don't like to do that as a pastor. But I will close with this. An evangelist shared the story of a mother who once approached the emperor Napoleon. Seeking a pardon for her son. He replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. He's already received a second chance and he wasted it. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is what I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. You and I are in need of mercy. And when we receive it in full measure from the Father, God, by his grace and the power of his spirit, is able to empower us to extend it to others. May we do that this day and this week in our lives. Would you stand with me? And we'll close in prayer. 
head into this evening and this week. Father, for these that are gathered here, I thank you, Lord. I pray that you would bless them. We've focused tonight on this subject of forgiveness, mercy, how hard it is to release these things. So God, we want to trust you with what is very often some of the hardest things that we have to do in this life. Letting go a hurt that's been committed against us. Help us to do that. Help us to trust that the, the work of the cross that's enough to cleanse our sin and shame, that there's power there for us to extend that same work to others, to release, to forgive, to let you be the judge. Lord, help us to relieve ourselves. Would you lift that burden from us as we trust you, Lord, and as we walk in the freedom of mercy and forgiveness. God, in our lives, may we extend that to others, pressed down, shaken together, Lord. God, would you give us an abundance of heart and spirit in this area. God, may we experience by your grace a blessed generosity. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's been a blessing to be here with you tonight, and I pray that you enjoy a wonderful evening and a great week in the Lord. Drive safely. If you have any thoughts or need some prayer, I'll be hanging around here for a little bit. Have a great night.